Hi. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and the truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's start with a prayer. We always want to involve God in the things we do. Lord, we pray you'll be with us in spirit and in truth, and you'll help us to understand you and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. We pray that we will understand uh, the things we're going to talk about tonight uh, clearly, and, uh, and that the things will help us in our Christian walk. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with a combined moment from the word illustrated in our board of direction. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. In the Gospels and in Acts, there is a phrase used, for the remission of sins. And frequently pastors and preachers and believers read that phrase from those specific books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and think it applies to them as it would have applied to the audiences it was shared with back in that day, uh, the Jews. And I would suggest this is not entirely true, and I discovered this as I was preparing for our milk uh, uh, gathering last Sunday, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But first, we have to admit that Jesus... He came to the lost sheep. Sorry, Derek, I should have warned you about this. Oh, okay. To the lost sheep uh, of the house of Israel. We'll call them the children of Israel. That's who Jesus came to. In fact, when he was on the earth, he said, I come not but for anybody, but for these guys, right? And so he came to them. They were the children of God, God's covenant people, and they were his people, and he gave them his law. And it was a law that was uh, uh, civil, uh, civic. It was a law that was moral. It had all kinds of application. It was ceremonial. The question I want you to ask yourselves really quickly is, the Gentiles and the pagans and the heathens, did God ever give us a law? He didn't. So I'm going to put no here. Nope. That didn't apply, right? And then uh, he gave them the uh, prophets. So we can put prophets here underneath the children of Israel. He gave them the law and the prophets. Did God ever give the Gentiles or pagans or heathens prophets? No, he never did. That's a nope. And then he also promised them a Messiah, which most of the Old Testament talks about. In fact, I'm going to put Old Testament here. Did he give us an Old Testament? Did he give us a promised Messiah or a real Messiah? That's a nope. And that is a nope. Okay, so we have a really distinct uh, thing that God is doing with the nation of Israel. He has given them all of these things, and he said, I will covenant with you, and you'll be my people, and I will be your God, etc., etc. He told them, listen, Jesus told them, and the apostles told the children of Israel, believe, receive the Messiah, and you will and be baptized and you will receive a remission of sins. That's what we read. And if you look in the gospel accounts and if you look in the book of Acts and especially at Pentecost and in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is talking and he says a remission of sins, that word is a thesis, a thesis. If we, uh, if we uh, transliterated that into English, it would be A-F-E-E-S-I-S, a thesis. And it means to be 
pardoned, forgiven, delivered. But the most literal sense of that word is to be sent away. You will have your sins sent away. Okay, that's really intriguing. What sins did the nation of Israel have to have sent away? Well, remember, they were under the law. And so when you, they were under the law, they were then, by virtue of the law being present, they were sinful. So it was the sins that they committed under the law, under the prophets, refusing the Messiah, anything that was going on there, they uh, were, had to have those sins sent away. Remember what Paul said, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. Look over here, did the Gentiles have the law? No. Did we have the prophets? Nope. Did we have promises? Nope. We didn't have any of that. So by the law is the knowledge of sin. We didn't have it. We have a law written on our heart. That's Romans 1, but that's a different story I'm talking about. So Paul speaks of a remission of sins. And now let's just talk over here about Paul. How many times does he talk about this remission of sins in his writings? Well, the main place really where it's talked about, and it's not... Uh, talking about the Ephesus, the main place he talks about it is in Romans chapter 3. And listen really carefully to what he says here. This is to Gentiles. Forget all this. This was Jesus and his apostles. Now we're coming to Paul over here. Listen to what he says. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ready? whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Through the forbearance of God. Now this message is different and it's unique. It's really different. In all the passages of the Gospels and Acts, Remission of sins means a thesis, send them away, that the shed blood of Jesus sent, by believing on Jesus, sent those sins away. But the term Paul uses for remission of sins is paresis, not a thesis. It's paresis. Why do you suppose that is? That to the the house of Israel, it's God sends those sins that were uh, un caused by the law, the presence of the law and their actions. He sent those away through the shed blood of Christ. Why do you suppose that Paul doesn't use a thesis that God would send the Gentile sins away, but instead paresis means he would pass by those sins. He would not, he would tolerate, pass by and tolerate is what paresis means. That in the Gentile life, because of Christ's shed blood, God 
he tolerates and just passes by. He doesn't send them away. Now, in both cases, sin is being taken care of, and it's all through Christ Jesus. But for the house of Israel, he, he literally, they speak of sending those sins away when they believed, repented, were baptized, and everything else, God would send them away. But here, it's God now, he just passes by them. He just, and, and even he tolerates that, that word is used for paresis. He tolerates the sins that come from Gentiles and pagans and heathens. That's really interesting, isn't it? I can't help but wonder if for the rest of us who have had no law, except for our knowledge of what's written on our hearts through nature, etc., that due to Christ sheds blood, shed blood, God passes by our sins and they aren't, because they aren't there by the law and the prophets and the rejection of the Messiah and the, us having an Old Testament. Now it's like, he's just like, my son did it all. Just, you're going you're gonna to fail. You're going to be who you are. You haven't uh, been under all these covenants. I'm just passing by your stuff now because of your belief on my son. I think that's a really important thing to consider. It's very nuanced, meaning you have to really think about it and think about what that means. But uh, I think it's worthwhile uh, to give it some time and consideration. And this concept is going to play into what we're going to discuss tonight, which is a little off our topic that we've been going through the creation and the fall, etc., Every week we meet on Sunday and work through verse-by-verse verse Bible uh, teachings. And we do this because faith comes by hearing the word. And uh, I'm of the opinion that faith at every level, a mature Christian, an immature Christian, a babe in Christ, that faith needs to be fortified and strengthened. And I've become more and more of a personal proponent of that idea as I've studied the word and been a Christian, I've learned uh, that to step away from the word, your faith, I don't care how mature you are, can weaken. So we invite anybody to come and join us and either by tuning in live or, uh, you know, watching in our archives. And we ask people if they, or we invite people if they want, they can come physically to the campus gatherings on Sundays. And uh, these gatherings are sometimes, there's something I've personally kind of tried to start for a number of reasons. One, I have been called, I believe, by God. I'll say that before him as a teacher. And as such, it gives me an opportunity to share uh, things that I've learned with others. Um, they're also a forum for people who have been in institutional religion to, uh, to not serve the religion, but for us to try to serve people who come. Meaning we just try to help and then we get out of here. Uh, there's no serving the, the church. And they're a place where the Word of God is the focus, even the songs we sing and at the time of study. But they are simultaneously a place where the Word takes a back seat to the spirit of love. And uh, it's not that the Word is ignored. It is taught arduously. But we, I, we try to promote that, listen, the Word is very important for your personal growth. But we aren't going to divide and fight over the word. So we welcome and invite people to not only join us online and all that, but we hope they will come and honestly express themselves, their warts, their views, their opinions, their lifestyles. It does not matter here. It doesn't matter at all. And this little promotion is a preface to a message that I think needs to be addressed after something that happened on Sunday in the meet. 
And I'll get to the nuts and bolts of that message in a minute. In, in Ayn Rand's fictional but somewhat prophetic book called Atlas Shrugged, a group of the world's most prominent industrialists and others start to disappear. This is what the, the book starts out saying, this guy is a noted this, and he just suddenly disappears. And at first, nobody knows where they've gone, but in time we learn, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the book, they, they have le- the, the uh, geniuses of industry, etc., because of the way the world is working, have left, and they have gone to and tried to establish their own community where their ideas and their genius in government and industry and, and uh, pretty uh, a strong work ethic can be put in place. And uh, they decided to abandon society because they could see it was on a downward trajectory and to give their time and talents to building something new up. And while I'm not, uh, I'm not really uh, a big supporter of attempting uh, physical utopias, you know, many religious leaders and groups have tried to start religious utopias, communes and things, and where they're going to do it right, you know. Uh, in some ways, it is what our ministry is all about spiritually. And so every time we write a book or present a book or do a Tuesday night show or have a verse-by-verse teaching, I personally, just to let you inside of what goes on in my head, I personally am convinced, in fact, I'm beyond convinced that... Uh, we are doing this for the future. Um, I don't, I've never believed that I'm going to live to see the fruits of these labors. And, uh, and I don't think these labors are going to revolutionize the world or anything. But I do th- see them as contributing to a framework that will exist as a future Christian city of refuge. Where in like Rand's uh, book, th- people are going to wake up and say, this way has not worked. What else can we try that has not been tried? And it will exist outside mainstream institutional religion and, and um, money and politics that thrive in present day evangelicalism today. And so for this reason, we archive everything that we present. And, and for this reason, we have always been willing to change doctrinal stances, investigate openly, admit we're wrong, admit, I admit I'm wrong, or I thought this way at one time and now I don't any longer. Uh, in other words, we're not about making people satisfied and happy now. I don't really care about building a big following here and now uh, or empire today. Everything we do is at creating a reasonably backed reasonable approach to scripture and approach to being a Christian and to try to really show the error of what we have done before. And of course, the reason we do this is because we see a need and uh, even a developing trend uh, where Christianity writ large at its core and in many of its expressions, not all of them, has become very inept and ugly and truly antithetical to the message of Christ in many ways. And so to us, these, pro- these problems fomented at the time of Constantine. Constantine made Christianity a, a state religion. That was the beginning of the end. And it didn't get any better. It blew up with the Reformation, with all the many churches and sola scriptura and the infighting. And it didn't get any better with the Restoration movements, Cal- Campbell, uh, Alexander Campbell and Mormonism and J-dubs and uh, Christian scientists. And 
and it's just plain ugly in this duplicitous age of either super hyper liberalism or uh, super extreme fundamentalism and then the, then the materialism and then the showmanship and then the political evangelicalisms all around us. All of that stuff has to us just lost the savor. It is salt that has lost its savor, the pure message of Christ. And so we're trying to do our part small and rather ineffective uh, to offer in the future a reasonable, viable, biblical, applicable solution to what presently is. And I feel led in this, very led in this endeavor. Uh, not a prophet, uh, not a spokesperson for God. Uh, I am not one single bit different than any seeker of truth. And I meet a lot of them uh, through our ministry, they write, and people who are in uh, the live audience. So theologically and philosophically, uh, we try to open up the discussion on Tuesday nights and talk about the different ways to see things, but we try to live them out in our gatherings on Sundays. That's not easy. So I want to talk about these gatherings for a minute because whether people know it or not, that's kind of the, we call this place the factory. It says the factory on our door and, and titled after Andy Warhol's art commune, but uh, also, really, there's gears on the door, and there's three gears. It says faith, hope, and love, and they, they're supposed to intertwine and call it the factory because this is the place where we're seeing if we can put into effect the things that we talk about theoretically, theologically, and philosophically. Can it actually last? And primary to the campus gatherings is, it's on our wall, it says campus, it says freedom in Christ. And this is not just a saying on the wall. That is the, the whole goal as a Christian group to try to allow complete freedom to anybody who claims Christ as Lord and Savior and, and people who don't. I mean, we really try to, to do that. And so accomplishing this is anything but easy because most groups function best in an atmosphere where rules and demands and expectations and statements of faith and we believe this uh, are pushed down from above, you know, a top-down kind of authoritarian. That's how groups function best. It's been proven. And so we refuse this almost daily. There are opportunities to let that go, and you, you sometimes want to. You want to impose something that is top-down because you can see it will work better for what your objectives might be. But we have to ask, can a gathering of believers actually get along without direction from the top and opinions and doctrines certified from the top? Can, they, can believers survive seeing things so differently in one, in one setting? And we see that they can so far. I mean, can they feel right with God not being told what they must believe? And also, can a church survive without imposing top-down authority measures of you need to serve, we need to do this, we're going to do that, we need your financial, we have to have you do this, all that. Can a church even survive doing it? And so um, this freedom means all people are allowed to, ex to express uh, and, or not express themselves and their views and opinions and their beliefs and their person, their lifestyles, in any way they choose. We've had every type in here. And other people don't know it, but I know it because I meet with people and I talk to them. 
Right? And we've had prisoners, we've had molesters, we've had uh, uh, vi very violent people, we've had people who think Jesus is the brother of Satan, we've had people who believe Jesus is not God, we have people who uh, are overbearing, we have people who are uh, quiet but dangerous, uh, we've had every type of criminal it seems, and we have a handful of good people down-to-earth, salts-of-the-earth people who haven't gotten into trouble, and for some reason they come out and they hang out and they, and they, they stay with it too. It's, it's really quite a melting pot of individuals that come to campus, and uh, we believe that choice is an unalienable, not only a right, it is a duty of a Christian to make choices and not be forced or not to resign their uh, choice to someone else making that decision for them. We believe that you need to make those decisions for yourself by the Spirit. And the net effect is we not only encourage, but we expect men and women to sit together who are Trinitarians and modalists and, uh, or people who are eschatologically different, who believe in a futurism or who believe in a preterism or an idealism or the historist view of, uh, of uh, eschatology. We embrace all people who believe hell is a literal place for people who don't accept Jesus right now in this life and die. They're my brothers and sisters. I welcome them. Uh, they don't always welcome back, but they're welcome here. And on and on and on and on. I think you know this. We also realize all people have the right to voice opinions, but they should be able to come and go as they please. If someone doesn't like it here, and they leave, I'll see them in the marketplace or whatever, and I haven't seen them for months, and hug them, how you doing? Well, they always feel, well, we, uh, it's okay, it's all right. You go where you want, attend where you want, financially support others, do whatever you want to do. That's how, that's how it has to be if you think about it. Most people go, for some, it's really hard to bear the opinions of others. For some, it's really hard to bear the teachings that I give because I give my opinion. And people are welcome to, to differ with it, but it's hard to hear those things. And so a lot of people will leave and leaving's okay. However, the basis is not only freedom in Christ, but this freedom is sustained by the opinion that very, very few things are said in concrete. Very few things. Now, I've had a lot of people challenge that notion, but I have yet to see them prove to me that things are set in concrete. I mean, some really smart guys, some really smart Christian apologists I've talked to, had conversations with, and uh, so therefore, opinions are going to vary, and so will our practices vary at campus. And this is why we perform whatever baptism a person wants. No baptism, fine with us. A baptism someone else gave them, whatever you want. Sprinkle, splash. Immerse, whatever you want, we'll do it. You know, within the, the content of how the Bible's interpreted. Fine. You know, if you want an elephant to suck the water out of its nose and spray it on you, we probably wouldn't do it because we don't find evidence for that in Scripture. But if there is a, a stance in Scripture that's provided, we'll let you do it. You decide how it's done. We have people who want communion. We don't have communion regularly because I'm of the belief that Jesus said, do this until I come. And he said that to them, and I believe he came in 70 AD, so there's no reason for communion because he said, do it until I come. However, we have people say, I want communion. We do it. You know, we do it with alcohol wine. We do it with regular wine. We do it with different types of bread, whatever. 
So fortunately, our approach hasn't amounted to chaos yet. Uh, if it was bigger, maybe it would. People voice and speak. As stated, that's okay. So having said all that, I am the self-appointed teacher at campus. My views are no better than anybody else, but I will research and I will teach what I believe is true. If people don't agree, it serves as a, a, a seed to get them to go search and discover something on their own that is contrary. That's part of what I am as a gadfly, and that is to get you swinging at the truth, to hit something and get yourself to think. Part of that's for it, but anything I teach, I try to make it to what I believe. But the call is my life uh, is to teach, so that's what I do. Uh, but the important thing is believers in Christ get to pursue him, and I think I've made that clear. What does the approach accomplish? In my estimation, having watched it for a number of years, and as it's changed and morphed, it has accomplished patience. When someone voices opinions, myself too, the people in the audience learn patience. They, they learn long-suffering with each other and or with me. They, they learn to temper their emotions when they have to try to share and engage. They learn honesty, you know, because they may disagree and they can sit there quietly for only so long and they'll either honestly express what they believe and stay or they will stand up and rush out and never come back and then they avoid having to voice what they've said and they just go to a place that whatever it is, it develops deeper relationships and it develops a kindness that we've seen. And I've seen, other, we've had other groups come in from other churches and things and I don't see these, these traits. I don't see them. I see a lot of standoffishness. I see a lot of, you know, be, be, get away from me. I'm not sure I trust you type of stuff. So in essence, it's the fruit of the Spirit, we hope which takes work. Uh, it takes dying to the self, and it takes holding your tongue, and it takes putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Uh, we could try to govern through homogenization. We've talked about that before. That's been done. Started with Constantine, and it's done by the Mormons. It's done by every denomination. Uh, we could try to govern through common consensus. You know, take what you do and just make it as palatable to his elevator music church. Make it as palatable as you can to everybody so everyone gets a taste of their happiness. You know, uh, that's been done too. But if you really allow yourself to think about it, just challenge yourself, and this is, this is kind of limited to put it this way, the only approach that will meet the biblical directive to love while allowing people to grow by the spirit and not the direction of other men is the subjective freedom in Christ approach sans religious manipulation. Now here's the thing. Now I'm finally getting to the nuts and bolts. The door to Christian freedom, like the door to anything where you want an open market, must swing wide both ways. It has to go both ways. And this means that those who are extremely conservative in their doctrine, practice, theology, way of life, uh, must accept at least the person who is sharing views that are extremely liberal and vice versa, okay? 
So Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and blacks and whites and reds and yellows and males and females and in-betweeners and young earths and old earths and, and, and evolutionists and creationists and gays and straights and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, this is not ecumenism. Uh, you, anybody who comes knows we preach what the Bible says. But the difference is while we will preach or try to preach what it says, we leave it open for people to take what is being said and refute it, agree with it, disagree with it, help them, not help them, whatever it is. But in other words, I mean, to crudely say it, a fag-hating Christian or a person who claims to love Christ but hates homosexuals must patiently be allowed to voice their views in front of everybody present, including homosexuals themselves, who too must be heard with patience and love by the haters. What does this accomplish? It opens dialogue and it breaks down barriers that we put up and it allows for there to be love amidst disagreement in a faith where love needs to abide because it is by love we are known. Now, what makes this approach more than difficult is that we teach from the Bible. And it must be taught honestly and contextually and truthfully and as the manual God has given us who seek Him. What makes this difficult is the Bible can and will be understood in different ways and can and will be read in different ways. And I am under the impression that amidst all of these things I've just mentioned, in the face of all these tenuous challenges, God has allowed it to be this way. He has allowed it so that there will be a challenge upon our flesh constantly as believers to choose to love or not. To choose to be honest and upfront or not. To choose to do, be as Christ or not. And so we realize that we're all in different places and that we all have different trials and we're all sinful in different ways and, and we all see the world differently, but that God is the same and on Him and His ways we trust. The minute we error in this freedom, the minute we err one side or the other, the minute you do that in any direction, we begin to become something that has already been done and something that has not worked. It has not worked. But as long as people are willing to let God be the judge of every other man, God will judge. And you and me, we let people believe as they wish in the group, in the body, we will find ourselves truly trusting and loving him and others in his name. I've mentioned all this because of a situation that occurred in factory last week. I was teaching out of the book of Jude, and in that short letter, Jude speaks of some men who were in the church that had, in the face of grace, a justified lasciviousness. They said, it's okay, and Jude likens them to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who had given themselves over, that's the language that is used, to fornication and to going after strange flesh. If you look at the Greek, that's heterosarks, which means the same flesh, which means homosexuality. Now, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? 
what it says, I will teach. That's how it is. You got to teach it. And it clearly speaks of homosexuality as a sin. That's what it says. Because we don't agree with that, because we don't like that, because we want to be accepted or we want to be open, does it mean we don't teach that? The Bible says it. We teach what it says. That's what it says. We're going to teach it. All we need to do is look at the creation and you'll know that God intended humans, how do, humans should engage sexually. But sin is not our focus. It's just what the Bible teaches. Sin is not our focus. Jesus is our focus. Remember, God so loved the world. What world? This fallen world. That he gave his only begotten son to overcome sin and death. He's the focus, not sin. So we read earlier that the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, no man or woman is justified by their uprightness, and none are unjustified by their unrighteousness. If you can understand that coming in, you can handle the fact that the Bible calls certain practices sinful. Almost all human practices in the Bible are sinful before God, except the sin of faithlessness. That's not acceptable. But the righteousness of God is by faith unto all. The righteousness of God is by faith. It has nothing to do with what you do with your sexual parts. It has nothing to do with what you are engaged in or attracted to. The righteousness of God is by faith unto all that believe on him. As a teacher of the word, I have an obligation to teach what it says. People will come across passages. What, what if we came across a passage that talked about lying and I said, well, that's just not applicable anymore. Lying's okay. You couldn't trust me as a teacher of the word. So what is rarely said in addition to all this is almost everything that humans do is a sin before God. Homosexuality is one in a giant bucket. And I was amazed, thank God, my person is a very sinful person by nature, and uh, it's no less sinful than a homosexual sin. And yet I also can find myself, because I'm a heterosexual, thinking, oh, you are really a bad, you're much worse than me. It's a natural thing for us to do that. But thank God for Christ who overcame sin and death on behalf of all who believe. They are justified by faith. Our faith is what saves us. After teaching, we always open up our comments. Uh, we always open up our group to comments. Are we able to do it? Delaney has prepared the Q&A portion after talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have about 25 minutes left. The Q&A will last about six, I think. Six? Fourteen. Let's go. I want you to hear what is said. All you're going to see is me listening and hear what is said at the Q&A. Questions, comments? Adam Guyman. Can you skip ahead? 
You'll know by when I look a different direction. All right. A in the back with a B. Please announce your name. I have to use, now is this better? For our home audience. Oh, Carla, with a K. I don't know what I'm doing. I, um, we could even take this back further, Sean, as far as, as in the days of Noah. Um, I just want to say that the, the so-called first estate, that's Mormonism. Our first estate is here on planet Earth. But also, um, I wanted to read something. Um, you touched on this, my uh, NASB. Uh, okay. For certain persons have kept, kept in unnoticed, those who are long before and marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And here's the part that you talked about this. Denying our only master and Lord. Yeah, it is. I have a kindergarten question. No. <laughs> the big movement is the gay lesbian movement, right? Yeah. And it says right in the Bible that that's wrong, mm -hmm. but they're saying it's genetic. Mm -hmm. um, or they, or maybe they justify it because they don't believe in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Do you do you know why such a huge movement? I mean, I know that a lot of gay and lesbian people are in the government <laughs> pushing things through mm. but how logically can they justify it i don't know Woo! who opened that can of worms mary <laughs> i told you it's kindergarten robert has something pressing to say well that, it's not kindergarten that's go ahead robert I, I believe it was stanford university in the 70s they came out with uh biological studies of all of us earthers on the planet and they came up with the conclusion that a woman's brain is more tied together than a man's brain, and a woman's brain is different than a man's brain. That's why even I would be the first to admit women are better at, than men are at multitasking, certainly better than myself. Another thing that's interesting, this is only about maybe 10 days old, John Hopkins University, which is a liberal school. They love to support homosexual activities and uh, causes of whatever. They came out with a study literally less than 10 days ago. There is, with all their research, there's no such thing as a gay gene. You're not born that way. So that's what they came up with about 10 days ago. Well, I tend to think the guest genes are kind of gay genes, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 we got a comment in the back. Uh, oh, wait, right there, go to the will. Uh, I'm, I'm a little confused about. Um, the creation of angels. Some people believe that the angels were around before God created. It's on, Grant. You hear me? Loud and clear, brother. Uh, well, history repeats itself, doesn't it? Look what we have now. Gay USA. given by our wonderful Supreme Court. And so, and everybody wants to just say, well, it's, it's become an alternative lifestyle, so. And I have a big problem with that all the way, so. 
That's all I got to say. Thank you, and Grant. We have, we have a wonderful gay mayor in Salt Lake now. All right, let's go to Heidi. <laughs> I think we need to remember that that's only one example that's giving. I mean, no matter what the sin is, we are all predisposed to sin because we live in a fallen world. So whichever one yours is, like we just need to look at the example, the consequences, whenever we turn away from God, whenever our loves get or disordered instead of ordered in the correct manner, which would be obviously God first, there's consequences and there's problems. So let's not get hung up on the example. Let's keep focused on the big picture that no matter where you fall in whatever example is given in, in this small reading that we went through today, like we all fall somewhere. That's all I have to say. We've all given up something that has been given us. Great emails uh, in Arizona. Carlos, I was listening to the end comments from the last Senate. I have a question. When people started going off about homosexual lifestyles, wouldn't it have been more accurate for them to have brought up living in deliberate sin versus accidental sin we are trying to avoid? Wouldn't someone living in a homosexual relationship be the same as someone who has been in, had an anger problem and doesn't try and control it? So uh, that was one comment. Another from Lisa said, I was just watching a streaming video of campus. I am sad by what was, I was hearing, especially some of the disgusting, hateful comments from the group at the end. What was even more sad was the way Sean was kind of sat back and with a smirk the whole time these comments were being made. In reading about the section on campus website is love is this and love is that. Was that loving? To me, it's not, and it's hard because I love this ministry, and it has helped me a lot. I like how it is. I like how it is reminded by Sean all the time that the Bible was written to a different time to different people, and he goes into the history and facts about it. But it seems like this is not the case when it comes to homosexuality and the scriptures that involve it. Is its history repeats itself, like one man commented. Were these Bible verses written to or about same-sex couples in committed, loving, monogamous, lifelong, Christ-centered relationships? Did that even exist back then? Was Romans written about this kind of homosexual relationship, or is it about idol worship? Is this the same homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah, or was their sin rape? Corinthians, Timothy, written to or about sex couples committed, cup, sex couples in loving, monogamous, lifelong, Christ-centered relationships, or written about or two married men who had sex with male youths on the side, which was common in ancient Greece. Sean made the statement, homosexuality is a sin, but I think that is a broad statement for such an issue. When determining a sin, I think Jesus made it simple. All the laws fall on two commandments. Love God, uh, God above everything, love your neighbor. If someone keeps those two commandments, then they are keeping them all. So if a same-sex couple in a committed, loving, monogamous, lifelong, Christ-centered relationship are keeping these two commandments, then how could their homosexual behavior be a sin? If, someone homosexual, if someone's homosexual behavior involves idol worship, rape, molestation, adultery, then it's, is it a sin? Yes, they broke the two commandments. 
Anyway, it's hard for me to fully express my opinion through email. I hope it makes some sort of sense. I wrote back and I told her that my smirking was a result of trying to be tolerant to comments being made and not a sign of agreement. And then she wrote back and she apologized for some of the things that she had kind of alluded to. She said she was just angry. And uh, what do we do with all this? And what are the churches doing with all it? Well, they're taking a super liberal view or they're taking a super conservative view and they're, they're making decisions uh, and they're missing the point. And so uh, I'm going to just give six points, I think, and it's just to open it up where I think it should go. And then we'll open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413 for anybody who might be calling. Uh, I'll try to address this as succinctly as I can with the hopes to establish a contextual biblical view. First, from my understanding, the Bible says a person has the right uh, to call out another person for their sin when they are without any sin. I believe that is a contextual understanding of the Bible. That when you don't have sin in your life, you can call the sin out on another person. Until a person's in that place, uh, I think they don't have a right to speak to anybody's sin. Uh, homosexuals, LGBT or whatever, practicing or not, are saved by grace through faith. That's how we are saved. That's the common Christian understanding. They are not unsaved by sin any more than someone else is unsaved by the sin that is in their life. And we all have sin. Uh, purposeful or accidental. It is there. It's in our nature. Third, because all sin, we all sin and come short of the glory of God, all should keep their mouths shut. We should keep our mouths shut about indictments on anyone's sexual, sinful, whatever proclivities. We teach what the Bible says. We keep our mouths shut about what people do. It's really simple because we read what the Bible says for ourselves. Now, if there's a homosexual in the audience who doesn't like to hear what the Bible says, they have the liberty to go where they will be told what they want to hear. I'm not saying we don't teach what is true, but I'm saying everybody is indicted by the word of God. All of us. And we've made the biggest mistake by making them the whipping boy for sin. Uh, the Bible clearly states that LGB is a sin. It clearly teaches it. And to say otherwise is just not true. And so I don't think that needs to be thrown out. When you come up across a passage, you teach what it says. And then you yourself can decide how that plays out in your life by the Spirit by the Spirit and your relationship with Christ. The, no commentary is needed about what this or that or marriage or this or it. It's just, we just teach it, but then we let everybody live and let live. Thank goodness God so loved us. He sent his son to save sinners who have faith in him. That's what it's about. And finally, what sinners do with their sexuality is between them and the Lord. That is entirely between them and the Lord. I remember just to throw it out before we go to the phones uh, or go to the spot. Uh, when I was LDS, the stake president called me in when I'd been married for two years and asked me about oral sex. Now this was, this, was, uh, this was before they loosened up on that, but they tried 
to get into the bedroom of their members and they tried to call people in and find out if they were participating in oral sex. And I told them I do, I kiss my wife all the time. And uh, so, uh, you know, where do you draw the line? Oh, you can kiss her neck, oh, you can kiss her lips and her neck, but stop, you know, it's just ridiculous legislation by freaks to stop. Let's teach Jesus, faith in him, gays, straights, sinners, saints, Jesus. And let's just back away. Hopefully that little exercise we just did will help us see the futility in making these stances. Either way, either anyway, teach the Bible, give people the choice, move ahead. Let's go to a spot, Lanes. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people. And we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it and we've parted each other with it instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. Elisa writes, uh, my, this is a very encouraging uh, outlook. My husband and I learn, uh, enjoy learning about science, and when we learn about the largest and smallest and oldest things in the universe and the concept of time itself, for us it's a faith-boosting experience. I just want to make the point that learning about science isn't going to make you faithless. I highly recommend reading the Bible because you can learn so much from it. I tend to think that the more we understand about science and history and the context which is in the Bible where it was written, the more it seems that the Bible is, is actually accurate historical record. But history and science is less important than knowing how to give glory to God. Christ's example in the Bible is your how-to guide. It's simple but not easy. For those who don't believe or are weak in the faith, I encourage you not to be afraid to give your life over to God. Don't be too proud to be a humble servant. It might be scary to relinquish power, but when God dwells in you, it's like having a ton of bricks lifted off your shoulders. Jesus already gave the gift, just humble yourself enough so you can accept it. Don't worry about your atheist friends laughing at you. Just because, uh, trust me, you're not going out of your mind. Once you have the spirit, all you will want is for others to be unburdened too. There will be a pain, uh, but giving God power over your life is how you can be fearless. The scared people are the scary people. I like that line. The scared people are the scary people. Don't be afraid of knowing God or of any knowledge on God's green earth. God bless you all. And that's from Elisa. That was excellent.
Our friend from Ireland, Mark, he sent me something. He said he cut his teeth on religious teachings. You can't see it, but this is a little cartoon that came from a book or something uh, that he was taught as a child. And I'm gonna illustrate it quickly for you on the board. Uh, the question is for the child who's looking at this little cartoon, draw a circle around the one God loves most. Now I don't know what religion <laughs> Mark was, but it was some kind of Christian faith. And first it shows a potted plant. And you get to see, well, does God love the potted plant most? And then it shows a picture of a dog and a cat, actually. That's a dog. And does God love dogs most? And then it shows a picture of a big fat baby. And, but it says baby underneath it, not baptized. It actually says it. Poor Junior here didn't have baptism. And then it shows a priest's hand. It looks like a priest coming down and holding a sprinkler. And then it says a baby baptized. And you get as a child to circle the one God loves most. Oh, this religion. Can mine screw you? I think it mind-screwed poor Mark out there in Ireland because uh, he's still dealing with the effects. But thanks for sending that on. It was really interesting. Uh, my friend Ernest and his wife Sarah, he wrote her a beautiful letter. I'm just going to read the very end of it. He came out of Mormonism uh, and he's a dear friend. He's come to know the Lord. But he says, my perspective coming out of Mormonism is wondering how I can ever trust myself again. Uh, listening to Chuck Missler, Ravi Zacharias, Sean, as a Bible novice, I'm questioning my own spirituality, eschatology, and leanings to religion. And he ends it with that. And I just want to say to uh, Ernest out there in St. Louis, good, good. You want to be in a place where you are questioning your own spirituality and your own eschatology and your own leanings toward religion. This is the lot of a, of a seeker, Ernest. That's what you are. And in the tension and in the uncertainty, uh, that's when he appears. And that's when he confirms his presence, it is in those times when you are torn and wondering. That's when your uh, intelligence and your emotions kind of are at a loss. And he steps in and says, this is what I want you to know. So uh, welcome to the club. Uh, you've been in it a long time, though, probably before me. But uh, keep going, my brother. Uh, we have a call. James and Irvine will take that. Mark was a Catholic. Mark was a cat. That sounds like it with a little sprinkling hand. So uh, the Catholics are capable of great religious manipulation too. James and Irvine. James, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hey, what's up, Sean? How you doing, brother? Good. Thanks for your show. I like some of the stuff you guys cover on Mormonism and things like that. Thanks. Um, I've been getting a lot out of it, and uh, I have uh, some friends I'm going back and forth with with Mormonism doctrine and stuff. And uh, my wife's kind of pissed at me because I'm a little bit open-minded. I think that uh, Joseph Smith probably started out good, but then, you know, became a fallen, corrupted prophet and then corrupted his whole church with masonry and everything. And that's my opinion. But, that's mine, too, actually. Um, <laughs> but I had a question regarding um, just, like, you know, all this talk with, like, gays and let, you know, live and let live type of stuff. And yeah. um, 
doesn't it talk about it, you know in the church that like the apostle Paul would say um you know, don't let the church become leavened. Like, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. And, like, you know, if someone professes to be a Christian, they can't go on living in sin within the church because it would kind of corrupt the whole thing and to deliver that person out until they kind of are ready to come back as yeah. a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And and I think that's where context is really important. you got to remember what was going on there. The Judaizers and uh, the places that were used to real pagan worship, and we have it still in America in different places, but he was facing a nascent, early, young, tender-rooted church of believers. And so those apostles were trying to hold it together so the gates of hell would not prevail against it, and that was his wisdom to the church at that time. If you look where Paul says those things, you can see that in the early part of the epistles, usually in the first chapter, he says, to the believers at Corinth, to the believers at Ephesus, to the, he's addressing them there. And because he does that, I don't see why we would today take that same uh, approach because I'll tell you why, it doesn't work. Back then in, the, in Judea, yeah, maybe they were capable of doing that, that, that community of Christians so small and young. But right now, I can tell you, you go in any church and you start policing for sin, and trying to rid the church, uh, a physical brick and mortar church of people who have sin in their life, you're gonna spend all your time doing that and you're gonna make people liars or you're gonna offend them. The bottom line is the church isn't brick and mortar anymore, James. The church is the body of Christ. It's made of individual believers who are impervious to yeast, yeast infections uh, <laughs> because uh, they have the spirit there. And so, like Jesus said, let it grow up together. Don't try to rip out the, uh, we go back to Jesus' teachings on this. Don't try to rip out the, the, uh, the tares. It's going to take the wheat with it. Let them grow up together until the judgment. So we have a little bit of a difference between Peter and Paul on that one. I mean, between no, Jesus and Paul. If there's known sin, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I made a mistake. Between Jesus and Paul. Yeah, I because just I was part of a big uh, church, um, Hillsong, New York, and then they got found. There was, you know, people they were finding out. Oh, these people even, you know, there's a lot of gays in the church that are just going and thinking it's all good, but they had to eventually, you know, have you know, to do something about it because it was just making the news. And it was like it needs to be, you know, clean. They needed kind of, I don't know, if you say cleaned out, but they had to like, you know, purge out some of the things that were sort of messing up you know, how the church was being viewed and, and uh, even functioning, I guess, obviously. Man, the only thing Jesus purged out were the money changers. I, 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 you know, I didn't see him purging out people who had sin. It, it, so I don't get the message. I don't see Christianity and, uh, in that light. And I think it's futile. And I think, I mean, really, tell me, James, can you go to church on a Sunday and sit in a pew and consider yourself sinless? Well, I mean, I could say I've repented, at least, you know. So None of us are sinless. So we look for people who have changed their mind about their sin. Because that's, uh, what, re that's what repentance means. You've changed your mind. Not your actions. Yeah, it means I mean, at least. Okay, so if somebody who claims... I don't, believe in, I don't believe in policing, obviously. I think policing is ridiculous. But if it's openly, and it's like what Paul said, if it's even rumored among you and it's news... And yeah, I think we definitely got to like say, listen, you know, 
let's be real here. Like, yeah. this is the church of Jesus Christ. You know, let's be, we're gracious, but we're also, you know, a church, a holy people called out. Yeah. I, I absolutely uh, disagree in context. I think that uh, that's, that's the way I stand on it. I think that the church is full of sinners. And we repent, which means we've changed our mind, but it doesn't mean we're able to always change our actions. And uh, therein lies the difference. Now, if somebody is promoting uh, the raping of children, uh, I, I don't even think I would kick them. I don't think I would say you can't fellowship, but I don't think they would have any leeway with people who are Christian. I don't think they would infect the flock by preaching raping children's okay. So I just don't see the danger that, 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 uh, that Paul faced with, with what he was dealing with. I mean, if someone came up to you and said, hey, it's okay to be uh, uh, whatever you find reprehensible, would it affect you in your walk? Uh, it depends on how, how mature I am as a believer. Yeah, uh, you know. and says, be careful you're not deceived. But, well, I don't know. For me, I, because I know the Bible... I probably would be like, oh, that's probably sin. I can't do that. But let's say, you know, you know, little Joe Smith comes in and he's a brand new believer and gets led astray right off the bat. That's, you know, that I could see that being an issue. Well, this maybe is... Maybe he was once, he was once walking in sin, but then someone said, oh, you know, you're doing that and it's okay. God still loves us. You can do that. Then that's probably going to pull him back into sin. That's definitely not okay. Yeah, my, 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 my position is that the wolf is always at the door. And that whether it's in this church when someone comes on Sunday or it's outside with a neighbor, if someone's going to be swayed, they, they will be swayed. I just don't see this as the place that you have to police to make sure that there is holiness uh, present in order for people to feel safe because there's not. That, that's my point. I don't think there's holiness present in any group that claims to have purged the, the sin from their group. I don't think it's, pre I think your pastor is as sinful as the congregants. So I just don't see it in reality working. But maybe I'm wrong. Which part not working? Which I, part I, not working? I don't, see, I don't see it as being possible. What, what you're describing, it sound, in theory, it sounds good. It really does. It sounds like it'd be great well, if- do you, do, you believe in, do you believe in church discipline? No. Even though the Bible talks about it all over the place, but it, but the Bible contextually understood that was not to us. Where, who, where well, in the Bible? Contextually, Bi contextually, it's eternal. It's God's word. It's okay. all throughout infinity. Okay. Well, then, if you say that, then we have to take everything of the Old Testament as God's but word too. It's at least it's at least until we're face to face with Him. Okay. Wait. What we it, have right now. Then, then we have to take the profitable for godliness. Then we have to take the entirety of. Then we have to take the entirety of God's word. Let's do it. Okay, so you better, you, <laughs> let's start stoning people. And the entirety, it's God's word. You know, where does context come into play here? And, and that's the thing, James, is I think that we have usurped the Bible and we have said this is to be applied today and nowhere in it, nowhere do, does any apostle say that's what you should do. They don't say it's for the future I and for think, all time. I think, I think post I think post-Christ, we can take everything as being, this is the dispensation we're in, we're in Christ, and there's so much instruction regarding that. We don't need to fall back to Moses and all those days necessarily, even though that's kind of the standard, but yet Christ, in Christ, we have a new... Okay.
so you, standard and great. It's right. amazing. So you, you draw the line at post-Christ. I'll, I'll disagree with you for argument's sake. Other people will draw the line at no, it's, it's from Genesis on is the word of God. But you draw the line at post-Christ. Okay, are you telling me that what... I mean, I'm Jewish. I'll be honest. I'm Jewish. I'm a Messianic Jew, to be honest. So I know both Testaments pretty well. Yeah. But I realize that in Christ, but I realize that in the Messiah, when you're in the Messiah's reign, you know, spiritually as it is right now, we're, there's, um, there's so much grace. He cares more about getting us, getting, ready, getting us ready for heaven and getting people to heaven that he's not trying to make, you know, the eye-for-the-eye style law as as applying all over the land necessarily, even though he does care about justice. Okay. But at the same time, at the same time, though, there is justice and there's harshness in, in certain circumstances. He really cares about people knowing him and having mercy and the opportunity to walk into his okay. grace and his atonement. And so, so a, homo a homosexual... His world. A homosexual man, he understands the New Testament from Christ on. He understands Christ... God's grace, he understands that he's saved by grace through faith. He understands that. He knows that he has a thorn in his side. He reads that Paul's thorn in his side. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He, he reads that and he understands that. He realized he, he, he has believed since he could think that he was gay. He battles that. He doesn't like it, but he is. Are you, and, but, and he falls and he has someone he loves who's male. Are you telling me that the grace is gone for him because he's a homosexual? Well, the grace is there, but the problem is, is that the, un the understanding of repentance, I know in the Greek mindset, it's like, oh, just to change one's mind and hope you do better. But in the Jewish mindset, too, which was what Jesus was and what he was originally, who he was, it's, it's the word to change and return. That's so why like Jesus... You have to make an actual return to God. It's not just, oh, I, I still love, you know, raping women. I still love, you know, being an alcoholic. This is just who I am since I was born. I was always angry and aggressive. Yeah. You have to really realize that, you know, like I have to change my ways, whatever that takes, and Christ will lead me in that if I'm truly following in Him. Yeah. Even if I do love all these things that I used to be, like God will always, you know, no, no temptation is overtaking you, but that God will give you an escape, right. yeah. and so yeah. you can bear it. And okay. so it's like, again, James. You know, whatever the context was, it's, okay. it's always going to be the truth. And, and where we fall, we can get up again, and Christ will... Keep helping us. I agree so, with you. you know, we get to. I agree with you. But to just sit in it is not is is probably who's be just who's to judge undermine all of the who's to who's to judge who's sitting in it. How can you decide? No, I'm saying if, if someone loves if someone loves a man and they're a man and they're like oh well I just love it this is who I am and how I'm going to live then they haven't repented or they're not continually walking in repentance. You use Jesus. That's all, that's all I was saying. I'm not I, arguing. I'm just, that's all I'm saying. I know, but I, I have to come back at you. You say that Jesus, uh, when the, the Hebrew way, the Greek way to understand is just a change of a mind, which is what Paul adopted. Jesus repent and John's turn and repent is a very Hebraic thought. But here's the deal. That is, that's why Jesus was talking to the Jews and not to the Gentiles, James. He was not addressing. He was talking about. No, he was not. Talking to Romans, Samaritans. He was taught. He was. He came only for the house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said it himself. That's who he came for, and so his messages were aimed at them, and how they would understand that they needed to turn from how they were seeing the law. They needed to turn and repent. We talked about that on the board at the beginning of the show. But for Gentiles, Paul gave a very different message. You don't even find the word repent. 
used by Paul. Hardly, I mean, maybe once or twice, and it's not in the context of that's what you need to do. Because what are you repenting of? You had no law. So I, I, I understand all that you're saying, and I get the well-intentioned meaning behind it. But I do not think at the end of the day, what you are saying can play out in our world. I never have. But it already does. No, it doesn't. It already does across the entire world. When you see, when you see Billy Graham preach to, or Greg Laurie preach to, you know, whoever you want to pick, preach to thousands upon thousands. Oh, no. I, and then they come forth and repent. They all know, Lord, or they come to Jesus, at least, like what you're saying. They, kind of, they believe. They change their mind? Trust me. They, they change. There's a, there's, there's they, like the walk begins there. They, I agree. Wants, you know? They change their mind. But the, and I agree about sanctification, James. But we are not the ones to decide who is sitting in sin and who is not. That we leave that up to the Holy Spirit. We trust God is working with people who profess Christ. We don't need men to decide if someone's sitting in sin or not. What will overcome... Wait, wait, let me ask... Wait, wait, James, 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 one more thing and I'll let you talk. I'll let you wrap it up. We've gone over time. But what do you think will lead a homosexual more to overcoming his predilections for same sex? Uh, uh, what do you think will do it? Do you think it's going to be being ostracized and disciplined or do you think it's going to be love? Which one do you think will carry more weight? Well, I'll just finish with saying I don't think any of these answers have to be necessarily black or white or one or the other. I think that Jude... You know, he Spirit. makes it really clear in the book of Jude. He says, with some have compassion and mercy yes. on others, with fear, saving them, hating even the garment sure. by sin, I believe it says. Sure, and when I'm so counseling I people, these, I agree. I, I think with all of these, it'd be, I'm sorry, I think with all of these, I think it would be foolishness to say, oh, it has to be either all grace or all law. I would agree. They're all love or all, or all judgment. I think that the Lord is more in the middle in moderation. Uh, there's no judgment. Towards the long route. No, there's no judgment. Route, you know? There's no judgment from us. No. No, I, I would disagree. Love all. Yes. Lo judgment, no. I'm saying, but you see my point, though. It's all going to be about love, but yet even in the Lord's love, there's, there is a chastisement from the Lord and from the church authority. If you are in sin and it's open and it's, and it's a harmful or a... What authority? Eleven in the, in the lump, eleven inside of the, the thing the Lord's making, and it's something that can mess it up. I'm sorry, James. Yeah, the, the, the Lord has ordained or has allowed ja leadership James? so that that can be a protective shepherding uh, mechanism to keep away James? certain things. James? It's open rebellion to the Lord's will. James who, has the James, who has the authority? What men are you talking about? What authority are you talking about? The Lord has given us men who have authority. What authority are you talking about? Any of the authority that's been uh, raised to the laying on of hands and the ordination of the Holy Spirit who, by the Lord's uh, leaders who, and shepherds. Who are they? What are you talking about? Sorry? I, I want to know who they are. Well, men that hold the, the word of the Lord in high esteem. and that, I hold the word of the Lord in high esteem. Lord I have no authority. No, wait, wait, wait. No, wait. I, I hold the word of the Lord in very high esteem. I have no authority. I've had no hands laid on me, giving me any power. You do have, but you do have, well, you do have authority. I mean, you're on, you have a place and an open door that the Lord's given you. And so did Gene your, Scott. That's your calling, and that's who, what the Lord's made you, obviously. Okay, James, answer my question. Where, do the, where does the authority come from that you are looking to that gives them the power to step into another person's life and ostracize them from a church to, for people to hear the word? Who gives them that authority? Uh, well, 
So you don't believe in church authority? I'm asking you to prove to me where this authority comes from. Well, throughout the Bible, it talks about the laying on of the hand through the elders, through the okay. presbytery, through the Give me an example in this world today of someone who's had hands laid on them and the authority was bestowed upon them. And who, and who, and who preaches the word of God that's Fine. accepted in the, in the, in the, in the uh, eyes of many, it says. Fine. Timothy. Okay, give me an example. Uh, your local pastor of who the Christian church. Who, who gave the person who gave that pastor the authority? You would have to ask him, but it all traces back to Peter. No, it doesn't. You're, but no, what are you talking all, about, it James? Back, it all traces back down to the Lord. He no, said, it doesn't. None of it traces back. None of it, James. My brother, I, how listen. Can you say I, that? If the, how can you say that if the Lord told Peter, I'm building my church upon this testimony that you've given Peter? He is. Uh, you, you have, you have, uh, my, my brother, listen, there is no... I'm just preaching, that I'm just, that's a historical thing that the Lord established, and it's right there. It's not and the right. the Holy Spirit came upon that church in the book of Acts. I agree with and that. there it began. I agree, I agree with that, James. I don't disagree with you there. Listen, there is no authority, there's no line of authority, uh, unless you're a Catholic. There is. You'll find that the Holy, you'll, you'll find that the Holy Spirit and the Lord... He honors authority. He's not a God of chaos. So when you, re when you go against the line of authority, James, even me as a Jew. You, I know you're a Jew. I, certain, I know you I have, are Jewish. I have, I have, certain, you're I have certain authorities that I, that I know that, are just, that God has just ordained. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just how he, how he orchestrated things. Okay, in the whole I, I can accept so that. Like I can, can accept that. Just because the idea seems a little bit overbearing, it's really there as a safe marker. And I know it can be abused. We're not doubting that. But the problem is that when it is abused, then we obey God rather than men, obviously. Jay. But Paul, Peter, they all understood that even the Sanhedrin, all those guys, even Pete, even Paul, he, he apologized James. when he accidentally cursed at the high priest. James. All those guys, they understood that God's authority James. was even still there, even though they didn't agree with it. James. And it, you know, James. And except for when they, you know, when the, when the authority was in sin, blatant sin, then they could still, they could still manage within that authority. James. Call Matt Slick. Yes, sir. Go to Carm. Call Matt Slick and ask him who has the authority. He's an expert in apologetic. Who? Matt Slick. Call any apologist. Call call the guy at Biola. Call anybody and ask them about church authority. James, you're 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 very mis misunderstood mistaken. It's okay the Holy though. Spirit transfers through the authorities, and the authority is there to protect the flock. It's that's what a shepherd or a pastor is. What about the ones who don't? Some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some teachers, evangelists, all those things. It says the Lord ordained those. You can't ever get around them just because the thought seems Every, convenient. Listen, it's James, there. listen. And trust me, I'm a, I'm a rebel. You think it's easy for uh, me? You're a rebel, all I'm right. The, I'm, I'm James. part Jewish. I know you're part like Jewish. You're part Mormon. I know. You were part Mormon in the past. James. You, you have a lot of understanding and authority. James. From that. James. Alone. James. Yes, Let's sir. stop here. I, if you'll just leave your uh, address, I want to send you a book. Consider its contents, and it might help. If not, you're my brother. You love the Lord. You're obviously on fire for Him. You know, you're going to do a lot of great uh, things for Him. Praise God. And uh, I wish you the best, my friend. Can I send you one, one book, too, if possible? You can. That, I that probably I won't me? read it, but you can send All right. it. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's an Aramaic and Greek-based New Testament. I, think, I, I have your one. opinion on it. I don't have an Aramaic, but I do have an interlinear Greek. Okay, my friend, no, we've gone way over one, time. 
Thank you for your time, bro. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Oh, wait. Stay on hold. Stay on hold. And, hey, my, the Bible is called theimbible.org if you want to see more about it on the Aramaic and Greek. All right. New hold Testament on. and English. Okay. Hold on. Theimbible.org. Thanks, James. Hang on. We will see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light 